Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 72. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. In this episode, I sit down with two life science teachers, Christy Butler and Patty Richardson. Christy and Patty are science teachers at Forest Hill Central High School in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Christy teaches biology, AP biology, and AP research, and Patty teaches biology, AP biology, and the science of sports and games. Together, they have built the website Science Education Enthusiasts, where they share instructional strategies, biology lesson plans and labs, biology storylines, and much, much more. Additionally, both are heavily involved with the Michigan Association of Biology Teachers, and both will be presenting at the MABT Summer PD Conference 2019 on June 20th. You can follow them both on Twitter, Christy at KButlerSci, S-C-I, and Patty at P-A-T-T-I Richards 19. Welcome, Christy and Patty. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi, nice to get you guys on. It's, it's uh, fun been going back and forth on email. Uh, this isn't unusual getting two teachers on at once, but so I hope we uh, we keep all our, our voices straight and um, and can uh, have a good roundtable conversation. It's kind of exciting to have two teachers on at the same time because I think we'll have a good sharing of ideas. So thanks for joining. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. So when we this comes out, you guys will be in your last week of school, and so you'll be like really winding down. Um, how how's the year been going? Um, it's definitely been a busy school year. Um, both of us have had uh, new classes to teach this year, so that always adds a little bit extra to the plate. Um, but we have great kids, so that definitely helps. Yeah. So that was Christy and Patty. How about you? How's this year gone for you? It's it's been good. Um, like Christy said, it's been busy and we're always taking the stuff that we've done in previous years and modifying and changing it. So there's always something new to do and something new to learn um, on top of teaching a new class. So it's been good. Yeah, I think looking through your resources, um, I don't know, for me, I, I tend I tend to almost get surprised even on years where I'm tired I'm sort of surprised when the end of the year comes like I'm not a countdown the days kind of person in general um it's more like uh oh well I guess we got through that stuff um <laughs> this, the end sort of sneaks up on me every year I can't believe as we're we're sitting here I was, somebody was asking me about the number of days and I counted them up I was like oh wow that seems like a really short amount of time left um so it's <laughs> startling <laughs> yeah it always goes by so fast yeah, yeah. I agree yeah all right. Well, let me get into the question I like to ask everyone to start, just to, to put a little context. And so we're going to have to go one on a time on this. But uh, so I'll start with Christy. Um, Christy, how did you become a science teacher? What brought you into the classroom? Um, ever since I can remember, even like being really, really small, I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, so when it came, there was like nothing else that I wanted to do. I was really focused. It was actually really deciding what it was that I was going to teach. Mm -hmm. And I just had just such exceptional science teachers in um, my high school. So it just was something that I really love science. I was curious about things. And um, that's what I decided that was going to be my focus. And it's just what I started. And I got a job right out of college, which was really lucky to have. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So did you go into college 
to major in a science or did you go into major in education? Uh, what was your mindset going into study? Um, I went into college uh, majoring in biology with a secondary education emphasis. So both. Okay. Yeah. So it was planned right off the bat, ready to head in. Yep. Um, and so when you got first first started teaching, did you go into teaching in Grand Rapids or did you start somewhere else and eventually find your place there? No, I um, got my first job right in Grand Rapids where I'm at right now at Forest Hills. Um, and I've been there ever since. I've moved, I moved one year I was moving buildings um, just because of um, some teacher shortages within our district. But um, I've always been at the high school that I'm at. And for the time being, this is where I think I'll be. Wow. All right. And Patty, how about you? How, what was your path into the classroom? How'd you become a teacher? Um, my story is a little different. I went, when I graduated from high school, I was going to be a pediatrician. So I mm-hmm. went into college as pre-med um, with a biology major, chemistry minor. And then after my, I guess after about partway through into my sophomore year, I realized I wanted to have a backup just in case. And so I took some education classes, got into um, a cohort where I was in the classroom right away and just fell in love with the teaching. And um, since then, that's all I've ever done and wanted to do. So I, um, it was just, I, I felt that passion there to be in the classroom with the kids. So. So when you say you were in a cohort that puts you right in the classroom, does that mean like as a student teacher or you were running things yourself as a part of that cohort? No, as a student teacher. So we did all of our um, pre-student teaching classes right in a high school. I was at mm-hmm. um, Lloyd Norks High School in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And mm-hmm. we met at the school. We were, instead of doing all of our stuff on the campus, we met at school and we were in schools from our first education class all the way through student teaching. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. I, I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've heard of other programs that do that. I know some groups that where like once they're student teaching, they, they meet at schools to continue, like just to lower the travel burden um, right. a little bit, <laughs> but to get, have your like, so you had like your methods classes and yep. like your, yep. all those other classes right in a high school itself. I did. And we were in classrooms two out of the three hours that we were there twice a week. So I was in classrooms from, I took one class on campus, just like an introductory education class, the psychology one. And then all of my methods, all of that, I spent, you know, three semesters doing pre-service stuff. And then a semester student teaching right in that same building. I love that. Uh. Yeah, it was, it was really good. Yeah. So. Oh, wow. That's, that's really cool. I'll have to I actually was just having a conversation, uh, I guess it was about a month ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, um, where we were talking about trying to get student teachers at our school. And I was speaking with the superintendent uh, in a meeting and I specifically was saying, like, I think we need to do more to make our school accessible. We're a little bit outside of Boston. um, So we're you know, 35, 40 minute drive outside of Boston, but we're on the commuter rail line. So people people who live in our town work in Boston and Cambridge and that sort of stuff. And it's not, the train station is just over a mile from our school. So we could make it so that if we could wrap around some additional services, either observations or other things, we could set it up so that it could be a, a, you know, a, a, an opportunity for people to come out from one of those schools and, and get a lot of value from their time traveling out on the train. 
I think ours was a, um, it was a, like a trial program. I was the first group to go through it and they had an agreement with, um, Western Michigan university and the, our professor was there with us and made the arrangement, you know, worked with the teachers and, um, I thought it was a really great collaboration. That's neat. Christy, you're going to say so great. If you could have like, you know, if the teachers at the school had like an hour to teach these pre-surface teachers instead of, you know, university professors, like here's my classroom management. And, you know, you could get a lot of that, um, those different perspectives right in the classroom. Yeah. And if what you're saying is that, you know, basically more than 60% of your time was observing or being in the classroom, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, just like when we talk about how you engage students in science, I always want to the questions to come out come out organically. If you're going to learn how to be a teacher and somebody is telling you, okay, this is the way this is going to happen or these are the methods, it's going to have less meaning than if you observe things going on in the classroom and generate your own questions and say, well, well how would I handle that situation? Or well, I wonder why the teacher did that particular thing or I wonder what the background is or I wonder where this is going next. If you're observing it and generating your own questions, I think it's going to have a, a more meaningful impact on you and your future practice as you're a student teacher. Absolutely. I completely agree. All right. So, well, we've got the the background of how you guys both got into teaching. And so, um, as I said before, I, I stumbled upon your website uh, a little while ago and I was uh, really kind of blown away by all the resources. I might have, you know, four or five tabs open from your drive um, at the moment <laughs> in my many <laughs> in my many Google tabs that I have open right now as I've been looking through the different resources. But um, I was really struck by a couple of things that came in there. One thing you had is you described your philosophy as we believe that science is a verb, that our students learn best by rolling up their sleeves and actually doing science by questioning, planning, executing, explaining, and evaluating. And I was like nodding as I read that. Um, But I was really also struck by how fundamentally student-centered your teaching is. Has that always been your approach since day one or has that been evolving over time, particularly as you've had a chance to work together? Um, Well, I've been teaching almost 24 years. And so my teaching has obviously evolved. I always have felt that science is a verb. Um, As new pedagogies have been exposed to me and I've got exposed to ways to help kids to do that more, um, it has become a lot more student-centered and evolved into what Christy and I have on that website. Um, And working with her when she first hired in was um, a huge boost to me to be able to have someone that was like-minded to help with um, reworking labs, reworking assessments, brainstorming new ways to have um, kids think about content versus me giving them content. And I think that was one of the biggest shifts for me in terms of planning was not what am I going to do to teach this content, but what am I going to have kids do? to learn this content and be exposed to this content um, and how can they interact with the content instead of me just giving it to them. Yeah, I think my story is um, obviously a little bit different because I have not been teaching as long as this is my ninth year. Um, but I I really believe that this was always my focus. I got a great undergrad education at Grand Valley State University where um, a lot of our, you know, our pedagogy classes were all student-centered, and I had a, a lot of really good, like, science education um, professors that really helped me um, write le- good lesson plans that were all student-centered. But I think it took me a few years to make sure that my classroom was student-centered, 
and going into a building of teachers that were exceptional teachers, but the focus was maybe a little bit more traditional instruction, um, being able to kind of work with like-minded teachers like Patty, and we slowly started presenting and attending different professional developments and um, at the state level and the national level and just learning, I really feel like that helped us shift our whole um, biology department where now student-centered is the culture and the norm in our biology department. Wow. Yeah. What Patty, Patty, the way you said it in terms of changing the focus from what the teacher does to what the students will do, um, I think it's a great phrasing. I, I'm totally going to steal that. Because um, I feel like, <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, it's so I, I feel like, so we're, we're contemporary. So I'm wrapping up, um, you know, my 23rd year next year will be my 24th year in the classroom. Um, so we're contemporary in that. And I, listening to you talk and even listening to Christy a little bit, I feel like for me, my instruction that I got, there was definitely a lot of conversation about student-centered instruction, even back, you know, in the dark ages, you know, before, <laughs> before YouTube and before all that stuff, you know, back in the 90s, uh, you know, like there was talk about that in my master's program, but there wasn't you go you would leave those areas and you would go into the classroom and you'd see all of the teachers who were working in that building and they were like oh kiddo that's so cute this is how we teach science and it was this direct instruction methodology um and i was in several schools early in my career and even in the school that i'm in currently now with very good teachers it was a direct instruction model um so you know the way you described it patty it made it sound like you know christy came in with these ideas and was helped to be for a spark there. But Christy, even you said that it took you a couple of years to sort of build in to get there. So I guess the question is, um, was it just something that was this like slow evolution or was there a specific spark that led to you not necessarily being focused about what the teacher was doing and maybe what the students were doing? And maybe Christy, this is something for you where you saw yourself over those first three or four years. Was there a moment during that time? Yeah, I think that I, I remember as like a young teacher being just that overwhelmed, like deer in the headlights kind of thing. And, um, you know, going to a, a building where the instruction was just so great, but it was very different from what I had um, kind of envisioned in my head um, and kind of had like those, you know, philosophy classes. Um, and then I think what had happened really is that I mentioned to Patty at one point, like, hey, do you want to present at our MSTA, our Michigan Science Teachers Association conference? And we did. And because we, we got to go for, um, they, pre, they let presenters go for free. And then just being around that community of um, like-minded professionals from around our state, um, moving in the same direction, going to sessions that were like, yes, I want to try this in my classroom. And then going in the next week and trying one thing and then another. And then we got training from um, our our local Van Andel Education Institute, and we just decided to just start doing our labs and changing how we're doing that instruction. So it kind of slowly evolved, but was very quick because once we found something that we liked, we're like, all right, let's try this and then let's do it for everything. So um, we're definitely a rip off the Band-Aid kind of teaching pair, I guess you could say. Um, so we definitely just started to dive in and it just sort of became what we just did. I don't know. I think it kind of happened sort of naturally, but very, very quick. So Patty, with a little bit more, in, in, you know, institutional background in there, is that is that your recollection as well? That it was sort of like, oh, we flipped a switch and here we go? Yeah, for the most part. Like I always, 
was feeling like I was giving kids a chance to do things. But then as I got exposed to some new things, especially um, I did some training um, with the Van Andel and looking at their, um, stu- they had a lot of really good pedagogy with student-centered model and kind of being exposed to new ways, like Christy said, when we went to um, our MSTA, the science teachers, and then NSTA, and just hearing how other people were really focusing more on the students. Um, and for me, as a teacher with all these years, um, I've had to really recognize um, it's not so much about what the students learn, but how they learn and teaching them how to think. Um, I've given up a lot of the content that I always thought was important and realizing that they really don't. Um, and so we find are now finding ourselves asking, well, what do they really need to know? And then how can we make them think about it versus, you know, oh, I have to teach them the Krebs cycle and I have to teach them um, Hardy Weinberg and I have to teach them this vocabulary. So um, I think it's been um, a big shift from what mm-hmm. I first started doing. Um, and I would not want to do it by myself. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of work some days. But I think one thing that we have kind of like, um, and just within our biology department, we work with, I mean, three other exceptional teachers that that help us do this as well. And I think that we believe that like teaching isn't telling. I think a lot of instructors believe I have to tell my kids in order for them to learn. And changing that focus to realize that the when the students are talking, they're the ones doing the learning. So as they're processing this information, discovering it, just as the scientists did hundreds of years ago, that's where the real learning and those skills that to us are more important than the inner workings of the Krebs cycle um, are. We can really hear what the kids are thinking and hear how they're coming and processing this information and then coming to those conclusions. And um, I feel like really the support that we that I had in my classroom was actually listening to the kids and hearing their deep conversations and to me, that way, it would never go back to standing and lecturing from a PowerPoint. Mm. Yeah, you made me think of a couple of different things. One of the questions I remember asking, and this was probably about you know eight, nine years ago, I remember telling one of my colleagues, I was like, when we have a snow day or we have an interruption and we lose something, what do we cut? Because what we cut at that point was never the lecture. You know, we'd cut an activity, we would cut something else. And I said, that tells you where our mindset is. Our mindset is on what the teacher is doing and not what the students are doing. And I told them I thought that we needed to change that. And um, it was, you know, they would argue with me like, oh, no, what the students are doing is super important. And I was like, yeah, but when we have to make a choice, the thing we cut is the student activity. Um, And I thought that was a very enlightening moment for me personally. but I also you can hear this flip the switch thing. Uh, I know I went and stopped one year, stopped to tr- or tried to minimize my lecture and started to try to do some other things to replace them. And as soon as I was like a unit into it, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm done this. I'm never putting a PowerPoint slide in front of the board yeah. again this year. It was <laughs> the moment I did it. I was like, yep, that was so much better. Um, and it was what you were saying about the student voices, uh, Christy, that uh, for me, the question is whose voice dominates the airtime in the classroom? Is it kids in groups or is it kids saying things and other kids listening to kids or is it the teacher saying and the kids listening to the teacher in the room? And that's an important that's an important metric to think about whose voices are dominating the discussion because that's the person who's making sense of things. Exactly. I always tell the kids, too, that you don't want to listen to me talk at you for an hour and I don't want to do that. So let's do something else and be engaged in what we're doing. 
Yeah, I do still um, find myself lecturing, and I was actually just talking to um, a new service, you know, someone thinking about teaching the other day. Um, I do still lecture, but now it's at the end of a unit where kids have done a lab, they've exposed themselves to the content using whiteboards, small group discussions. Um, we've done some activities, done some things, and then I will come in at the end. And I overheard my kids talking about this to the same person that they love it because then they can come to the lecture and they have questions and they're wondering about stuff and they're kind of stuck on something. And so when I'm talking, they're more engaged because now they're really curious about something and they've got some burning idea that they just aren't quite sure about. And so they're listening for that answer. Um, and I also do find myself doing small tabled lectures. So I'll take my big lecture that I used to spend an hour doing. And as kids are doing their small group work and having their own conversations, I can overhear where they have a misconception or where they're stuck and just kind of drop a few tidbits from a whole lecture I used to give. And then they can move on and go from there. So that student yeah. conversation is powerful. Yeah. And I would say, Patty, I, I don't know if I, because I, I watch you do this all the time in your classroom, but I would say that it's not that you're lecturing. I think it's really that you're having a discussion with your kids. Like you're having like a wrap up discussion about things that you guys have talked about and things that the kids have whiteboard. And um, I think that I would, I would definitely call it just like a, an, a discussion of like equals where you can help fill in the blanks and kids can ask questions and then other kids can ask questions about something that somebody else asked. So it really turns into a discussion in your room. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, I, it's great. I love the correction. Nope. You don't, like her. You don't. <laughs> don't use that word. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like when you go through your PowerPoint, you're like jumping around right. slides and you're like, oh, this, this That's image true. is what we're talking about here. So, so I don't think it's as traditional as the word lecture kind of has that connotation to it. I guess that's true. Yeah, what I've moved to, and I, when you said end of the unit, because I kind of do that as well. So what I do with my students, and um, I work with a colleague as well, who so we collaborate on this, um, and we're doing this, this with both our honors and our AP curriculum, is um, I've moved to the I can statement model uh, for learning objectives. So I basically give the students probably about four or five days before we are getting to wrapping up a summative assessment. I give them a list of statements, I can statements, and I have the kids go through and fill out what they can do and what they can't do. And then we put together a, a slide deck of questions that help demonstrate those concepts that the ICANs are getting to. Because what I found was that even if I frame something along some concepts, the students might read it and go, oh, I can't do that. But then if I give them a question on that same topic, they might have a vocabulary gap or not realize that they can do it. So then I put together a whole slide deck, or we, I should say, put together a slide deck of shared questions. And then we usually put the answers down in the notes section underneath that. Hmm. Um, and then for each class, I look at the ICANs and that's the period that we spend the day before the test is we review and I'll go through and pull them out, but I'll put all of them up. So if you're in my class and like you didn't get the second ICANN statement, but everybody else did, well, 95% do it. I'm not spending time on that. I'm going to focus in on the ones that were like, you know, 50% or 60% struggled with it. Those are the ones that I'll hit, but I'll put them all up. So if you identified, oh, this is a weakness for me, I can go in and look at that question see if I can answer it and then read the understanding. And if they don't, then that, I'm like, then that's when you have to come for extra help or you have to go back to other resources or, or that sort of stuff. So um, I wouldn't call it a lecture either. It's sort of like a discussion, but it's sort of like a review. I don't, we need to come up with a new name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, your, your wording uh, end of end of unit uh, review is, is definitely the model. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I, I think it's a great, uh, a great discussion of that. Uh, 
that mode of teaching and the mindset of teaching. Um, and so now I want to get to what what I'm now thinking is a buzzword, which is this word storylines. Uh, and I had Jason Crean on a few months ago, um, who I think is, you know, synonymous oh. with the word uh, <laughs> storyline. Sure. Yes. Um, and I've talked to Jason a couple of times and um, it was great talk. Uh, and his storylines are definitely geared towards, you know, that NGSS first year biology component. And I want to play around with the concept of AP storylines. And so uh, we've been sort of working into that space at my school in there. But before we even dive into this, and I've got like 10,000 questions I haven't written up, but I'm going to let you guys spark them. Um, <laughs> but I want to know, like, what is an AP storyline or what do you guys define as a biology storyline? Um, and maybe, Patty, I'll hear from you first on this one. Um, for me, the storyline is using the content to so that it's connected throughout the year. So, and biology is hard in terms of making a storyline because you can start anywhere and you can make connections mm -hmm. wherever. So um, as I started to think about, um, like I started teaching AP biology and Forest Hills um, with another teacher. So I was kind of thrown in with his sequencing and the way that he was doing it. I had taught it at other schools previously, um, but still very traditionally. Um, and it just didn't feel that flow. And I didn't feel like kids, what I really want kids to be able to do with the storyline is take what they previously learned and have to use it to make sense of the next topic and then use it to make sense of the next topic. So started to think about, well, where can we start? And then how do I connect that to the next thing and to the next thing and the next thing so that the content is building on itself and they're constantly cycling back to what they previously learned. And Christy, what do you think? Um, to me, I really think that in, in biology, AP biology or your, your normal freshman biology, it's it's a story of life and how life evolves. So just making that um, those connections to that idea of that evolution and how it gets um, sometimes more complex and sometimes more simple or how something stays the same over just a long period of time and um, what that means for that organism or uh, an ecosystem or the system as a whole, I think is kind of that storyline. And what we've tried to do is figure out like, when can we kind of introduce something and then when can we bring that back and when can we talk about it again? And then how can we apply that to either a micro scale or a macro scale? The one thing I think that we've done too, and I think this is really important with the storylines, is having a cohesive thread. So what we've done is um, our cohesive, we have two cohesive threads, kind of almost four with the big ideas that are in AP biology, but very heavily cohesive thread of evolution. And we mm -hmm. start with um, evolution and just natural selection and animal behavior. And then all through the year, we're saying, well, that you know, this is because of survive and reproduce. This is because of natural selection and also ecology. And I know in the AP biology world, everybody always does like ecology as their summer assignments, or it's the thing that gets cut, or it's what kids do over breaks. And I just don't think it's doing ecology the service it needs. Mm -hmm. um, and so we tie that ecology all the way through too. So if we're looking at something like Christy was saying, macro scale or micro scale, we're looking at it with those lenses of evolution, natural selection, and um, ecology. And then it, as we start to get into it, cell signaling starts to work its way in. And then once we kind of hit it harder, it, that's also a very heavy lens that we're looking at with um, concepts. 
Yeah. So let me tell you what sort of struck me about your the the way you guys have structured. And again, I'll put a whole bunch of links into my show notes. So if people want to to go in here, and uh, I'll also have the link in my um, opening paragraph to the overall website. Because as I said, I have been playing around in this like sandbox of your resources for a few days, uh, getting ready for the show. And there's a ton in here. Uh, but what really struck me is that um, something that I have gotten away from that I think you guys have retained is this idea of um, of thematic unit titles that mm-hmm. that are in your documentation. Um, and for me, I, I I don't know why. I don't. Know, it made me question myself. So this is the this is the good thing about it. Um, for me traditional units seem like a barrier to telling a story in my mind. Um, and I guess the under, underlying idea is that to me, traditional topics are tied to like a textbook are tied to a chapter are tied to like a, a canon of the noun of science, whereas a storyline inherently creates a need to know. And I know that looking at some of your like templates uh, for how you model things, you start with a phenomena, you start with a question, you have a big unit question in there. Um, I'm curious about the decision to maintain the unit structure of, you know, something like chemistry and biochemistry or cell structure and membranes. Um, Why you retain that as sort of your overall unit structure in the year? Um. I think I kept it in there because I see it as chapters within the story Mm -hmm. and um, having a large topic to kind of help kids wrap their brain around where we're going and what we're doing. Um, I have, we have to post targets on our board um, and mine are all questions and it's the question of whatever. So I, sometimes kids will come up with the questions. Um, a lot of, for the AP, I kind of do it just cause I want to drive the storyline a little bit more. Um, but it's a question. And then based that question is what they're going to be able to answer by the end of the hour with the unit and the questions build the story so mm-hmm. that, um, I don't know. I just see the, the units and what I have done, the units are not tied to chapters. So one unit might be, um, like our first unit with the natural selection is, four or five different chapters scattered throughout the book. So we're not using the textbook to drive those units. We're using our storyline and our content to write our chapters and of our story and then finding the textbook. Okay. Where does this fit in our storyline? So kids are all over in the textbook. We're not doing it sequentially to the textbook. Yeah. I do think that it kind of helps for kids to not become too overwhelmed because um, it gives them kind of like an, not an end point, but kind of like, okay, this is the the material that we're going to be using for this. And I'm going to see how that connects to the next thing and to the next thing. But definitely I, I agree with what Patty said, that they're, they're more like chapters to the book and um, having that theme kind of weaving and out of each chapter is, is important. It, I guess it's kind of like if you had like a, a huge novel and it was just one chapter, <laughs> that would be a lot. Yeah. So the this has actually been a discussion that I've had back and forth with my colleague who I work with in AP is the the idea of having uh, a degree of scaffolding for students. Mm-hmm. So let's say you're going through and we've got, you know, um, we'll have to talk about the changes to AP in a few minutes. Um, <laughs> but for like right now in the as we record this before the new stuff comes out, which it should have already come out by the time this episode has uh, has dropped. But right. in in the four big idea land uh, that we are in, you know, I have 
you know, my 1A1 is my topic and there's a whole, that's my large learning objective. And then I have my underlying um, concepts underneath there. And I can tie those two sections in the chapters and I can jump around a little bit in topics. Um, but we also want, we've been pulling out some sort of key vocabulary ideas that help students literally just have an anchor to say like, oh, when did we talk about Hardy Weinberg? And they can go back to our master documents and say, oh, that's right. We talked about Hardy Weinberg in this box. Wait a minute. Why is Hardy Weinberg tied to this concept? Our unit structure is we use the question as our guide for what we're going to talk about in a given month. Um, mm. And we've gone to now, I think we're in the process of getting to about eight questions that drive our curriculum, about one a month. And that's sort of our structure, but we've gotten away from the sort of traditional titles of animal behavior and interactions, or as I said, you know, cell structure and membranes or cell metabolism. Um, instead, we have a question like our opening question next year are, why are plants green? And then the subtopic is, <laughs> and what does this tell us about the evolution of life on earth? Um, mm -hmm. And then we structure those learning objectives underneath in a sequence that we think will help students answer that broad question and we'll have sub questions along the way that will help them in their sense making to be able to come back and tell a cohesive story about why plants are green and what that has to do with the evolution of life. And it, that actually sounds similar to what we do. We just give them titles mm -hmm. in the sense like we have a, a, dry, a big unit question that's driving the story and driving the pathway. It's just um, we give the kids some that what like almost what you're saying with key vocabulary to kind of hang their hat on in terms of all right this is the big idea of this topic um but it's similar and then we've gone through i've gone through the um the old you know one a's and all of the standards <laughs> and stuff and rearranged them into my topic units so there's an um i don't know if i think probably what you're referring to in terms of the document is that um, AP biology planning guide. Yep. Um, and it, the, those are linked on there, um, in terms of which, um, enduring understandings and which essential knowledge things are all kind of linked into our, um, unit topics. And we spend a, you know, two to three weeks, um, sometimes four weeks on, on a, on a unit. And I would say that that document, um, that Pat is referring to is, um, definitely, uh, a teacher document where it kind of helps <laughs> helps uh, oh no student <laughs> they would that'd be confusing for them but it kind of helps frame us for like just so for me being like a newer AP teacher like okay like really kind of like what are we focusing on here and where are we going um, that was helpful yeah I I I can appreciate that as well I um <laughs> I, I'm gonna definitely put this in the the show notes and I will probably share this with uh, several colleagues because I think. Um, I do find that and what I've been saying to people about, like, why are they changing the AP um, CED, you know, the course and exam mm -hmm. uh, description is that I think for a new teacher who comes into AP, it's like overwhelming. Um, the, the big ideas is not the traditional way people think about how you set up your curriculum. You think about it more in a unit structure. And so mm -hmm. it makes sense to go to something that looks more like what it is that you teach. Um, and so I can appreciate how you guys have made the decision. It's actually been sort of, this has been the largest struggle I've had about 
making the shift over to a storyline model. And very much like you said earlier, Christy, the, the Band-Aid model of, um, I went to my colleague and I was like, I think we should just throw out our entire sequence and we should change it next year. And that was last year. And he's like, okay. Because um, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that sounds about right. Uh, and he, because that's, because he's kind of a go with the flow guy. And I've already, I think I've broken him, honestly. Because um, <laughs> about two years ago or three years ago, I went and said, I think we should flip our classroom. He's like, what will this lo- look like? And I'm like, don't worry about it. I'll do the videos for the first four units. And then then they realized, wait a minute, so who's doing five through 12? And I was like, oh, we're all going to do those. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> so I Trojan horsed in flipping the classroom and everybody now is on board. So I think you do that to a person, you know, we've been working together for 19 years. You do that to somebody like six or seven times. They're like kind of trust that, all right, you're, you're not burying yourself in this. Um, but I struggled a lot with the scaffolding for my students where I want it to be this big, kind of fun discussion of biology and not be put into boxes of units. Um, I guess that's my other problem with the word unit is that I feel like historically I would teach old school biology and it's like we do the cells unit and then we move on to the heredity unit and the kids would put them in little boxes and they wouldn't make those cross connections, which I think Patty, you made the point of the reason you want the whole storyline is to make that cohesive connection. So is that something that you're building time in for students to reflect and pull those concepts together and making it so that it's part of the process of drawing unit to unit to ins- to really reinforce the fact that this box or this unit isn't its own entity, but something that's cohesively part of all of the work we've built up to this time? Absolutely. I kind of start, um, as I started a unit, like after they've taken a test, I'm like, okay, so remember that you've learned this, this, and this. And so, and the kids naturally will ask the right questions that drive into the next unit. So every unit that I do, I'll have a kid that'll be like, well, what about da da da? I'm like, that's awesome. We're not there yet. So that's mm-hmm. where we're going. Mm-hmm. And so just hang on to that. And then, so we just are, and I'm, I, because I've taught it enough, I have kind of that storyline in my head that I can, I'm able to pull back on those concepts and throw them in there. And I'm kind of deliberate on, um, the questions that I give the kids on when we do, we have big whiteboards and they'll do group discussions where they have to model things out and draw things out. Um, and I'm deliberate in those questions and trying to activate the prior concepts as they're addressing those so that they are seeing those connections. I think I'm um, definitely more intentional about it in my, um, my biology class where in our um, biology notebooks, they have one that they keep all year as after each unit, we're reviewing back to like our model of life. And in, in our regular biology, it's kind of our storyline is like, what are the characteristics of life? So as we go through these things, um, how does that how does that classify? So we go back and kind of look at our, our web that we created on our early weeks and talk about how, like, yes, this was something that was um, a cross-cutting concept or this is how this fit in this characteristic of life and kind of keep going back in each unit and listing those. So as they think like, um, something has to breathe. Okay, so why does that have to breathe? And we kind of have those conversations and readjust our model of life um, after each kind of unit. Um, I think that that helps kind of make those have those kids make those connections. And it's not just this unit, then we're done and we don't have to think about it again. This unit, and then we're done and we don't have to think about it again. So just always trying to weave that um, that that life storyline into the into our um, year. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the notebooks and I, I believe I read that you guys use what you call bills, which is, you know, Lee Ferguson's uh, oh, yeah. model. <laughs> That's where I got it. <laughs> yeah. 
uh, I, I would I would not describe I use it I do not use interactive notebooks with my honors or my APs but I, I do teach an alternative program uh, of students and I've been using that and um, I have been billifying that over time I've been slowly evolving <laughs> my my interactive notebooks to be very much more bill like uh, I don't know that I would say that quite have gotten there uh, you also carry kids also have lab notebooks as well that is separate is that correct yes blabbing biology lab notebook is what it stands for we figured if we had to call one a bill the other one had to have a name so oh. it's the lab. It so if you're looking at our materials and you see b-l-a-b-n that's the lab notebook <laughs> so students have these two notebooks and you you have this like iterative process of reflection. Again, it's not you making concept concept connections, but students are making connections throughout the year as they fill in their, their notebooks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they can then With flip back. Manipulating them along the way. Like we're really good at <laughs> manipulating kids to get to where we want them to go. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I guess that means that you have a built-in sort of feedback cycle where you're collecting and giving feedback on these notebooks. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. We kind of check in on different um, like labs or activities or um, what we're trying to really do is have our kids um, check in with each other more and kind of give them like more, more, more feedback on what they're noticing in, um, in student work. Hmm. Peer feedback model. I guess well, the question would be, what's your student load if you're, because <laughs> I've seen, I've seen, I collect notebooks, I collect lab notebooks in my AP and I know what it's like to collect, you know, 40 lab notebooks and go through them and time consuming that is. So you're building in the, the feedback, but what, what kind of student load are we talking about to check these two different notebooks? Um, I, our biology classes are, um, our max is 32 and most of our classes are 28 to 32. And we have, um, our, we're lucky our AP biology classes we have for two hours of our day. Mm. So I have that one group of kids for two hours and then I have two freshman biology classes. So, you know, the feedback comes a lot of times. Um, and I, with the, their bills, I'm not able to give them as much feedback as I was like, I would like most of the feedback is coming in the, the blabbins where I can take them and keep them for a period of time. Hmm. The bills are more for their day-to-day um, -day thinking um, and they're using them with each other and they can see if they're missing something in their notebook that someone else has to kind of add that piece. But it's, it's hard. Like that's the hardest thing. I think one thing that um, I started doing was that like the handouts that we give them, we shrink them down to what we call bill size. Mm -hmm. um, I've been collecting those uh, like after they've done them and then they can uh, like tape them or secure them into their notebook. Oh. That's helped being able to like carry things home instead of having to like <laughs> carry 40 notebooks home or go to school on a Saturday or a Sunday to do the grading. So that's helped a little bit too. And um, I think that like just with our instructional shifts that we've been doing, I don't feel like I have to grade everything in mm -mm. that traditional way, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's really just kind of like putting eyes on things, giving a, a couple feedbacks here, but it's not like grading every single assignment or doing like, oh, they have to do vocab and all this and I have to grade it and make sure it's right. That's definitely been a, a shift. So that helps in, in that part as well. Yeah. It sounds like uh, on the verge of even almost standards-based grade mo model um, where they could justify, well, these are the learning objectives I've hit and here's my evidence for it. They've been collecting a large amount and they would sort through and say, yeah, these are my pieces of evidence that I've, I've learned. 
Yeah, we're not there yet, but I think that what we're doing is getting to those that line. Yeah. Yeah, we talk about it a lot. Like, this would be really, really great for a standards-based grading. And then, you know, our district's not there yet. So, um, but I think that we'll get there eventually. Yeah, I, so I, I am, uh, we are changing our schedule at my school next year. Um, and so we have, uh, the entire time I've been here, 19 years, have taught eight periods, 47 minutes, no rotation, no drop, you know, gridded out. My AP has a lab once every six days. Um, oh. And that, so it's like, it's been very, it's, <laughs> it's very grid-like, block-like. And um, this year we went to a later start time. Um, as we're in the process of transition to what will be a seven period drop one rotating schedule starting next year. And then my labs actually become an every other day for AP, which is going to be mm. awesome. So I'm going to yeah, 55 yeah. minutes. Yeah. I'm going to get 55 minutes uh, of, for class and yeah, I'm going to drop one in the cycle, but I'm going to get in a, in 14 days, I'm going to get seven 55 minute laps, which is you know, <laughs> amazing. Like yeah. I, I wouldn't, uh, this, this past week we were sitting down and going, what are we doing in all of those times and how do we do? Uh, but as a downside, we also have to disaggregate the lab from our class. Like right now it's just AP biology, but next year the AP biology mm -hmm. lab, because of the scheduling, they're not going to be linked to their class. You have to sign up for both, but you could have me for class and have the other AP teacher for lab. Mm. So they have to be separate grades. Yeah in there. So mm -hmm. um, I actually sub just submitted a week ago um, after many conversations uh, with Paul Strode uh, about uh, a proposal for making our AP biology labs a standards-based grade model for next year. So, mm -hmm. um, and everybody I talked to, my department head, uh, dean of students, assistant principal, principal, they were all like, this is awesome. Can you explain to us what this means? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's been good for me, but I've had to explain it. I, I've almost wrapped my head around what it is. And as I said, I, in my process of continuously breaking Brian, who's my colleague who I work with, I'm now changing this for him next year. So we went flip classroom, <laughs> we went storylines <laughs> in AP biology, and now I'm making him do standards-based grades. Uh, but I'm very excited because I do think it is a it is a model that once we can learn the method in this sort of lower stakes setting, it will pave the way for possibly making all of our AP class, both the class and the lab, meet this model. Well, when you yeah. figure it out, you'll have to let us know because it sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'm just, I literally am just stealing all of Paul Strode's ideas, but then I'm going to have to figure out how it works in these contexts. Um, but yeah, I'm more yeah. or less, and I'll post, uh, I, I've posted Paul's blog before um, on his, 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 my, uh, my classes are pointless uh, from his blog uh, post, which I basically, I took that and I took the whole thing and then started to re-edit it to say, well, this is what this would look like in our class and how that works. So um so yeah, so I, well, yes, I will definitely share. I will, I'm sure I will be talking about it quite a bit on the on the show in the next upcoming year as I struggle through this new exciting thing. Well, I think what's great about that is that you have um, a teaching partner that is willing and able to kind of go along with the flow. And the fact that what you just said, like, you know, like you're willing to struggle through this for, for the next year because you realize that it's what's best for kids and that, you know, teachers are still learners as well and we have to figure things out and we're not going to be perfect about things and that's okay because we're going to reflect and we're going to get better and um it will ultimately benefit the kids hmm. yeah there's and also some freedom comes with age you know um combined we have you know nearly 50 years teaching experience between the two of us um and 
with that comes the understanding that you don't know everything and can't possibly. And so it's it's a lot easier to take risks when you're you know more than 20 years into your career. Um, and I am taking full advantage of that. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's All right. So uh, my last question before we start getting into the what we're looking forward to is um, you guys are both uh, heavily associated with the Michigan Association of Biology Teachers, a name which I find very confusing because I'm a member of the Massachusetts Association of Biology Teachers, which also uses the acronym M-A-B-T as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, like, and you guys are going to do a summer, uh, you have a summer workshop, which I think is kind of cool because we, we do ours during the school year every year. Um, but so one of the features of being part of the state association, I think, Christy, you said you, you presented first at the Michigan Association of Science Teachers Conference, but what are you guys getting out of being a member of the associations that are in your state? Well, the um, the Biology Teachers Association is affiliated with the National Biology Teachers um, Association. So it's kind of like our state chapter of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what is like having attended an, uh, NABT, uh, the conference a couple of times, is that you're just surrounded by like like-minded life science teachers that are just like doing exciting things that you haven't heard about or doing some of the same things that you're doing. And that's reassuring um, about how you're approaching your classroom. So we really um, wanted to create that community in our own state. Um, so working with a couple teachers from all over um, Michigan is um, has been great. And we're putting on a conference for um, the life science teachers in our state of just about sharing what we're doing in classrooms and um, just trying to get better at, at what we're doing. Yeah. And Patty, have you seen it change uh, over time since you've been a member of these different organizations or? Yeah, slightly. Um, The MSTA, the Michigan Science Teachers Association has had conferences for a long time. Um, And there's been a big shift in that with just the way pedagogy and things have changed. Um, The advantage I think to the MABT is like what Christy said, it's a focus on biology um, I've attended the NSTA and um, the NABT, and NABT by far is, for me as a biology teacher, much more beneficial um, than just the NSTA, where it's a focus on biology. So I think um, what we're trying to do with the MABT in terms of um, getting it going and building our um, our group is having like-minded biology teachers and giving biology teachers a place and a resource to um, help each other as we are navigating the NGSS and just mm. trying to change our storylines and all of that um, with our pedagogy. I think one thing that's really important for me being, I still consider myself kind of on that younger teacher and I haven't been quite teaching for 10 years yet, um, is that this job is difficult and mm. it's, it's a lot. And I think that education has um, the teacher responsibilities for education have definitely shifted from um, when I've been teaching with teachers that, you know, I've been teaching for 30 years. They always say, well, back in the day, it used to be X, Y, and Z. And that's just not the case anymore. Um, I think to be, for this to be a sustainable career for people, I think that you have to find um, support systems to make that that easier and to have good thinking partners and um, available to access to easy and free resources. Um, I think that when you don't have that and that becomes a lot harder and can add additional stresses to the job and can make um, that teaching career maybe a little bit shorter and uh, we need good science teachers. So we, and with MABT, we're trying to um, have like mentor 
um, teacher programs in to support um, younger teachers. Um, just sometimes they might just they might be their only science teacher in the building, or they might be working with a teacher that's maybe that definitely that more traditional teacher that doesn't want to like just flip all their classrooms all of a sudden. Um, so just providing um, a support system for just all biology teachers and realizing that we're all in this together and we're a community um, has really been our focus for MABT. Well, that's that's a great point, and I think that for me. You know, I as I've mentioned it before, I have a very good situation within my building um, where I have a great colleague to work with, but I also access a lot of colleagues around the country and they support you in times when you need to struggle and they have expertise that the people in your building just might not have. Uh, but I think you're right about the support. I think it's very easy to go through a, a down period or get rough, you know, feel like you're in a rough spot or a rough patch. And while social networks can have a lot of downsides to them, they can also provide you, you're right, that support uh, from teachers who you know are like-minded, who have been through similar struggles and can really empathize. And even sometimes just say, yeah, it's rough sometimes. Um, and that's That can help you get through that rough patch. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So uh, before we get to you guys asking me questions and, uh, and our picks, um, do, what are you guys looking forward to in uh, the upcoming years? Uh, maybe Pat, we'll start with you, Patty. Um, I guess I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to um, modify things and to just really working um, and helping kids to learn to think scientifically. I'm just really enjoying um it's kind of a breath of fresh air in terms of teaching that I've not stressing about my content anymore and just more thinking about my kids and what's best for them and how I can just help them to be good thinkers and be skeptical about what they are reading or hearing and thinking um, and just curious about stuff. So I'm really looking forward to continuing to be able to um, find new ways to help kids to do that and expose them to things that they maybe wouldn't be exposed to in their bubbles of, internet that they're in <laughs> um i think i'm looking forward to um definitely figuring out how to like better assess these kids with um like a three-dimensional um lens and um really increasing their science literacy because i think that that's important i know that you know a majority of my students are not going to become scientists or work in that stem field and that's okay but um i hope that all of my students after they leave me um, can at least have some science literacy and understand the process of science works and become um, better stewards and better consumers of um, of things. Hmm. Yeah, I think your your point about skepticism from both of you and also the the science practices are just good critical thinking skills. <laughs> um, so even if they're not designing an investigation, if somebody makes a claim, they need to be able to say, wait, what's the evidence for that claim? And that doesn't have to necessarily be associated to a lab. That could be about really anything. Um, mm -hmm. That could be financial. That could be really in a variety of different aspects of their life. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a great aspiration to have. Um, I was nodding once again, which is great for an audio platform uh, when Christy was saying <laughs> assessment, because I was like, oh, that's right. Assessment. I've tried to figure out how what NGSS assessment is going to look like uh, in Massachusetts when we roll out our new state assessment uh, starting next year. So, yeah. <laughs> all that's right. All to figure out. <laughs> yeah. 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 The California teachers are going through it right now. So I'm hoping to steal all their ideas and three months from now when they get their feedback so before we go live on ours. <laughs> Same. 
All right. So uh, when you guys are not teaching, uh, I, I, you're building this website, you're <laughs> connecting with them. You don't seem to have anything you could possibly have bandwidth for. But uh, Chris, <laughs> Christy, when you're not teaching, uh, what do you like to do? Um, I love spending time with like family and friends going up to the lake or going out. Michigan is just is such a great place to travel in summer. And there's always like lakes and forests and hiking. And um, I just like being outside. Yeah. And Patty, what about you? Um, pretty similar. I have two children. And so I spend a lot of my free time um, doing their activities and being <laughs> at their things to support them. Um, and then we spend our summers camping. So um, I really enjoy just sitting by the lake. Um, we have, you know, the Lake Michigan and wonderful beaches there. And just to sit and read a good book and um, just kind of zone out, watch the sunset. And yeah, that's our summer. Uh, yeah, last summer I was uh, I went to the MSOE, so I ran along the other side of Lake Michigan. Uh, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> in the and it is lovely. Lake Michigan in the summer is a lovely place. Um, it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, I was running. Our winter was a little rough this year, but uh, the summers <laughs> are great. Yeah, yeah. You got you guys where you are look like you might get like pummeled by lakefront stuff. Oh yes, <laughs> we had I think fourteen snow days this year. So Ooh. yeah. Yeah, it's like that's almost like uh, Western New York, the Rochester Buffalo area. It looks like you guys are set up for the same type of weather. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right, and I live in snowy New England, and we had I think one this year. Um, <laughs> what? I don't even know what that's like. Yeah. Well, we got well last year. We got pummeled. That we got well. We had four. Uh, four in March a year ago. And I had already cleared my schedule to go to the read. And then I was going to go to the MSOE. And then literally we had five snow days after that. It was like, normally we don't get a lot after our February vacation. So usually like February is our really snowy month. We get a little bit in December, January, March, you get, might get one or two. Uh, but I had gotten approval to miss. And I ended up missing like a ton of school. I was supposed to like, just miss like the last day or two of the school year. And I ended up missing like a ton of school because all of this stuff got pushed off and our last day of school was like you know a week and a half later than it was supposed to be um last year so it was last year was kind of crazy from a snow standpoint so well we've had snow days in april before so <laughs> yeah yeah we had the april fool's day one i think we've had two april fool's day snow but yeah no i remember seeing some of my friends who are out in the midwest got that pummeled by that april this year um there was a big april storm so yeah there yeah. was yeah no thank no thank you um <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, before we get to picks of the episode, do either of you have questions for me? Um, I do have a question. I'm wondering, like, one of, um, like, what is one of the things in your classroom that you're most, that one of the things that maybe is most challenging in your classroom after teaching for, you know, was it 19 years? Well, yeah, 19 in my current building. Uh, I'm ending 23 overall. So after 23 years, what are some of the challenges that you still um, face with your with your classroom? Um, yeah, I gosh, well, I can pull out my checklist because I was just running <laughs> writing my summer checklist plans down and what I'm going to work on. Um, I, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about uh, in terms of making sure that students have a sense of ownership of their learning. Um, I think still fundamentally is something that I struggle with quite a bit and also having it so that their grades are reflective of their ownership of their learning. 
Um, and so right now for me, what I've been thinking a lot about is I've been thinking about, you know, our current grading system and shifting schedule and shifting curriculum and that sort of thing. And I look at my students in front of me. I have some students who are just like masterful at memorizing a whole bunch of stuff mm -hmm. and they're masterful at spitting back a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but they pretty much really just go through all of the stuff that we tell them and they sort of just demand, like we tell them all of this information and it's just, they're just good at school, but they're not necessarily good at learning. So I guess my continual struggle that I am going to, you know, work on until like I'm done teaching is to get it so that the structures of my classroom reflect what I think is important, which is helping students become good learners and not necessarily be good at the game of getting points. Um, I think that's great. Yeah. And so, we yeah, can figure that out too. You can let us know that as well. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think that I mean, when you when I talk about the idea of moving to a standards based grades, I think that's fundamentally I want to change the nature of the conversation. Yeah. Um, and so I think the conversation I'm still having, and a lot of credit to my students. I teach in a very high powered school. You know, we have, you know, where it's a school of about two thousand, somewhere between nineteen hundred and two thousand. Uh, we just had a student win the Mass State Science Fair and second place was also from our school as well. Um, you know, we have lots of students who go on to Ivy League schools and, and MIT and, and places like that. And so uh, our Science Olympiad team has won the state uh, championship for I don't know how many years in a row. Our academic decathlon has won the state championship every year I have been there that I can remember. I don't remember them not winning. So like from an academic competition standpoint, we, are, we churn out these students who are really, really good at school. Mm -hmm. uh, but getting them all to think about learning and many of them do but some of the kids who have the greatest potential are much more caught up in the game of school mm -hmm. than figuring out how to learn and i wonder what yeah. they're racing towards like do they understand that it's not a game of points this is not a gamification i gotta collect all the points but i need to like understand how to think and learn and i worry sometimes about those kids and their fundamental balance like are they pausing are they thinking are they are they really reflect? Are they going to be reflective citizens when it's not all about just getting points? So no, I will never figure it out. But I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we have gotten to picks of the episode, and Patty, you have yours up first, which is your your pick. I'll let you tell it. <laughs> Google yeah. right ahead. So um, the pick that I put up there is one that. I learned about at MSTA two years ago. It's called Flipgrid. It's mm -hmm. um, flipgrid.com. You can just Google it. And it, I really started using it a lot this year. And what it is, is it's a way um, you, it's a closed system that you can even moderate that kids can't see each other. They make videos and you can set the length. So I've used it a lot this year for um, kids. When I was gone, the kids could share um, where they were at in their independent research questions that they had. They would just videotape a conversation with each other. Um, I've had my AP kids use it where they were, they did some research on a hormone to help them learn some things about the endocrine system. And they wrote out a whiteboard and then they got into small groups and they just present to each other and they make these two minute to five minute videos and then they go into this grid and you can have it open that kids can watch each other's videos and make comments. They can make video comments to each other. And then I can make um, either video comments or digital comments to them. And it's just a wonderful way to do some formative assessment of kids thinking and talking and presenting without having to um, 
sit and listen to 30 kids all share their thinking at the same time and um, kids getting bored with each other and they make these little quick videos. Um, and it's a Google add-on, so you can just use it right with your school. If you have a Google school, um, your mm. kids' emails work. They just log in with that. Um, I know it's been kind of a game changer for me this year and I can't wait to use it more next year. Yeah. It's something I've, I've played with each of the last, I think three years at little pieces, but it's not something I've ever been able to fully integrate in. So I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it is, it, I was literally just thinking about it, you know, two, three weeks ago about, <laughs> is there a way I could do a flip grid? Like I haven't, I haven't folded into my practice, but, um, enough i should say that i haven't been able to do sustained things but this year i used yeah. it to, to have my students introduce themselves um oh. to me oh, so i had yeah. and um i i have a lot of students who so we are 46 percent uh non-white i guess is the best way of describing us even though we're in a pretty lily white state in massachusetts we have a very heavy uh, Asian population, both of Chinese descent and Indian descent and many other nations around throughout the Asian continent. And pronunciations is not something that is necessarily always obvious. So, you know, you go up to a student and you say, all right, this is how I see your name. Is this how you pronounce it? And they say, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, your name is not whatever. <laughs> like <laughs> you have a name. Yeah. It has a pronunciation. Tell me how it is so I can respect the way to pronounce your name. But what yeah. I found is when I did Flipgrid, they pronounced it for me. So I actually got to watch everybody say it and I could hear it and I was like thank you now I don't have to have that awkward conversation of oh I've been saying it wrong for five months and somebody corrects me because I feel it's disrespectful from my standpoint to mispronounce a kid's name for months on on end um, so that was the way I used it but then I lost my my train of thought so I want to make sure I kind of keep it in and I've got some ideas but I love your idea of the mini presentations so all right Christy what is your pick of the episode um, I'm picking something that is uh, focused on academic productive talk. Um, that's one thing that I've been really trying to work on um, creating that classroom culture. Um, and then I just knowing that the one who's doing the talking is the one who's doing the learning. Mm -hmm. So just making sure that we have protocols and different um, things in place for kids to actually talk to one another and that they um, learn how to disagree with one another and how to agree with somebody and how to ask a question and give um, productive feedback. So um, I linked in our show notes a bunch of different protocols mm -hmm. um, that I've been using, like like write on a piece of on their notebook and kind of pass it to somebody or like a think pair share where we're going to like stand up. And um, another thing that I noticed that um, I also teach uh, a chemistry class with another teacher um, is that our, our kids are really struggling to like have conversations and they don't know that they should be like looking at each other when they're talking to somebody else because they're so used to either <laughs> looking at their technology or their phones or like they're just so uncomfortable and awkward that that's hard for them. So just even things like standing up, looking at somebody when you're having a conversation, you know, that, that body language is important to just kind of get that, that culture. And then they can be worried about the, the learning and not worried about like saying something that um, somebody might think is weird or funny or like taking away that embarrassment. Everybody has an equal voice in the classroom. So um, I linked a bunch of different protocols that um, I've been trying to work on and using in the classroom throughout the year. Yeah, and looking through them, I mean, some of them could be paired even with Flipgrid um, yeah. as well. Oh, so yeah. If you look at, say, that four-quadrant uh, voting chips, 
Um, the purpose is to elicit students' arguments from evidence or experience and revising ideas. If you were to give them a prompt where they have a couple of different um, you know, models and they could all weigh in and they make an argument. The nice thing about uh, about this is if you, you gave them that, you could have them practice something low stakes where maybe they're not comfortable looking at each other in the face, but they practice that. And then the next modeling you do around, you do it in class. So they've already had the opportunity to learn sort of the general protocol. They can delete the ones they don't mm -hmm. like. <laughs> um, exactly. And then when it goes live, they've actually had a little practice with the technique. And so it lowers the stakes, particularly if you've got uh, a class that's very anxious about speaking. Um, yes. That, that might be nice there. Oh, this is cool. There's a lot of, a lot in here. Yeah. So, it's oh, great. Great. All right. Well, mine, um, as we are transitioning into summer reading, um, I came across this book that is now, um, and I've, I'm only about 40, 50 pages in because I just started it and I am a painfully slow reader, particularly during the school year, because I don't know about you, but I read like three pages and I am asleep. So um, <laughs> uh, so I, I very rarely get more than like three or four pages into any book at night before I am found that I've fallen asleep. And then I wake up and I'm like, was I on this page? Um, but uh, I found this book and it came out actually a few years ago um it's called braiding sweetgrass it's indigenous wisdom scientific knowledge and the teaching of plants and uh, i came across this uh in a conversation about indigenous voices and something i had been reading i think it might have even been on twitter uh, which was talking about, you know, really just cultural appropriation. Do you use phrases that are cultural appropriation? And I had realized that for many years, I had described myself as the reason I like go to NSTA or NADB, NABT or the AP Read is that I found that that was my tribe. Like that was a phrase I'd heard somebody use and I thought it was kind of cool. And so I used it and I was reading something and I was like, oh my God, I have been culturally appropriating something. I didn't realize I was doing it. That's awful. And I was like, well, why do I do that? And the answer is I probably don't read enough voices that are different than oh. me. And so it's been sort of a side project that I've been working on is reading different voices from different cultures that do not have shared experiences of mine to just really sort of tie in as best I can to to hear to hear other voices so I can be aware of those things. I'm going to continue to screw up my entire life, but there's no excuse to not try to get better at these things. Um, and this book spoke to me when I picked it up because it is botany plus indigenous voices. And the author of this book is an indigenous woman, Robin Wall Kimmerer, but she's also a botanist and a professor of plant ecology. And so it was seemed super, super cool. Um, as I said, so far, it's it, the narrative has been awesome. Um, don't take my falling asleep because it's not exciting. It's I found it to be a great opening to the book. Um, it's just <laughs> teaching is exhausting. <laughs> so oh, yeah. during, we know. <laughs> during, the, during the summer, when I had the opportunity to sit on my back deck and read for like a few hours at a time, I am so looking forward to uh, diving into this uh, book that both blends together um, indigenous experience and botany and scientific knowledge. It looks like a great book. I just added it to my Amazon cart. <laughs> like so. <laughs> Give me something to do this summer. <laughs> yeah. I'm, a, I'm very excited about, as I said, diving in. I've actually, I think I'm probably going to sort of back burner it until I, until I can actually go back and start it over and, and give it the kind of attention I, I really want to. But um, yeah, I'm excited about this one. So, all right. Well, uh, Christy and Patty, thank you so much for joining me. This has been an awesome conversation. I hope you guys got something out of it. Um, 
because you guys got to talk and explain things. So I know you learned something. Um, Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, let me give my show credits. Um, Please subscribe to Life of the School, wherever your podcast uh, player of choice. Um, You know, you can get it from your uh, Google podcast store or apple podcast i tend to use stitcher but um i know podbean and others uh most podcatchers you can subscribe uh you can support this episode by going patreon.com slash lots um i post my show uh audio out usually about four or five days early for my uh patreons um and then i will also post my show notes there i also post show notes on life of the school.org uh you can also see all my old episodes there uh music on this and every episode is provided by x magicians and jake jenkins uh you can follow me at mr matthew tweets or at life of the school you can follow christy at k butler sci and patty at patty p-a-t-t-i richards 19 all right so thanks everybody for joining me and i'll talk to you soon